Equine health is our business. Horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the McKee Panel Equine Services EquiConnect podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Panel, and I am joined uh, by two of my colleagues, Dr. Marissa Markey and Dr. Claudia Cruz Villagran. And so Dr. Markey is at a Campbellville location and Dr. Cruz is at our Caledon location. Thank you for joining and welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. So it is the beginning of April and while we're recording this and vaccine season is ramping up so, so quick. As I'm recording this, I'm looking over and seeing technicians loading up vaccines for the next day. So it's all that's on everybody's mind. So I thought, let's have a discussion about vaccines and vaccines and horses, obviously, in particular, and the kind of vaccines that we are concerned about Ontario and uh, do a bit overview. So Marissa, let's start with you. So before we jump into what vaccines and why and, and, you know, the various questions we'll talk about, can you just give us a brief overview of immunology, something that we spend months and months and months working on, but you're going to do it in like two minutes? I'm going to try. Absolutely. So whether we're talking about vaccines in people or vaccines in dogs and cats or your vaccines in horses, like Mike said, we spend a long time studying immunology in school, and I'm going to try and break it down. And I'll tell you, for me, doing immunology in school, I thought of it like your body's army. And that's what made sense in my brain. So if you think about your body having this army of blood cells that fight infection, they have their targets that they know are good or bad guys. And so when we come in with vaccines, we're not creating a protective shield or bubble around the horse. What we're doing is showing that army a mugshot and saying, this is a bad guy, figure out how to kill him and be prepared in case you see him. And so that's what your vaccines are really doing is they're preparing your body's immune army to fight that thing if they happen to see it so that it's not the first time they're seeing it when they actually get naturally infected. So it's really important, I think, that distinction between it's not a protective bubble or shield, it's simply a mugshot. And that's why it's really important that we follow a vaccine schedule because as your cell lines die out, less and less of the cells know what the bad guys look like which is why we have to come in periodically and show them that mugshot again with our booster vaccines and say, nope, this is still a bad guy. Don't forget, you need to fight this one if you see him. I don't know, does that make sense to you too? That's how I got through immunology. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, we've had so much vaccine discussion over the last few years of COVID and what have you, but I thought that was a really nice, distinct discussion. Claudia, I'm going to ask you a question in terms of we just had a big meeting in December. We met with all of the vaccine manufacturers to review the vaccines that we pick. And we sort of had the three companies present their spiel, like why their vaccines are the best. One of the things I didn't mention in the introduction is that you're also a specialist and that your board is in internal veterinary medicine for large animals. So you have uh, an advanced degree and your specialty is the internal workings, which were you know, the immune system would be one of them. So 
you just maybe give us a brief overview when you're sitting in those meetings? What were you looking for from the three manufacturers in terms of which vaccines you think would be best for the key panel and our patients? Thank you. So I think it's a tricky question because the three manufacturers offer different things. One of the things we should focus on would be the, I guess, the amount of antigens that each uh, manufacturer offers per vaccine. So some of them would offer one or maybe more than three, let's say. So we have to consider that in these cases, we all know that uh, immunogenicity, which is the capacity of the immune system to be built up after a stimulus, in this case, a vaccine, uh, vaccinating against uh, a certain disease, it decreases slightly as you add the amount of antigens in that vaccine. It kind of makes sense, right? So we have to consider that. And uh, some of the manufacturers we spoke to would offer, let's say, more than one antigen in that vaccine. The other thing uh, that stuck in my mind was uh, that some of the manufacturers were actively doing uh, research on certain antigens. For example, in the influenza, talking about equine influenza, uh, we know that this uh, virus is highly mutagenic. So that means that it changes uh, periodically because it has surface antigens that change periodically, kind of like the COVID virus. So we have to be on top of research and seeing what the strains are in certain geographical areas to see if the vaccine we are providing will actually protect against that specific new antigen, let's say, let's call it that way. So some of the manufacturers we spoke to uh, were actually doing active research on that and offering the vaccine with the newest, uh, let's say, strains or the newest surface antigens that were causing problems in our areas. So I quite like that uh, and that they were doing active surveillance and their, I guess, their program included some sort of um, reward if the vaccine was not protective or if it was causing problems. All that information would eventually make it to their stats. Uh, so those are the main two things that uh, stuck in my mind when we were speaking with the manufacturers. And finally, I guess the prices, right? The prices were variable between them. I know we went to them and just said, we're picking the best one medically because that's what we want. And you know, the prices were all very similar. I'm pretty happy with what we picked. And it's actually the continuation of what we've been using for the last few years. So that was, that was nice to know. So Marissa, we are in uh, Southwest Ontario. There are a bunch of vaccines that we recommend. We have our cores and then we have if the situation demands it. So maybe you can just sort of broadly go over our core vaccines for Ontario. Absolutely. And I do think probably our core vaccines for Ontario are fairly similar to core vaccines in most areas for horses. And what we consider our core vaccines are going to be vaccines that are providing defense against things that all horses would see, just living their daily lives as horses. And for us, the core vaccine has to be effective it has to be safe and it has to be something the horse is likely to see. And usually these are diseases that are likely to be deadly if they are encountered without vaccine. So the first main example of that would be our tetanus. So tetanus comes from bacteria that are in the soil. Horses, being horses, are considered exquisitely sensitive. So they are more sensitive to tetanus toxins than some other animals. And of course, they also happen to shed more in their manure than other animals. 
So they're just kind of a recipe for disaster because that's what horses like to do. So tetanus is kind of number one on the list of that as a core vaccine. It's also worth noting that horse people should be up to date on their tetanus vaccine. In humans, we get them every 10 years. So if you're listening to this and can't remember the last time you had a tetanus vaccine, you should maybe look into it. Tetanus would be first on the core list. The other one that everyone knows is rabies. We do have rabies positives in our wildlife, mostly skunks, foxes, raccoons, and bats in Ontario. We have not had a positive horse in a very long time. I believe last year there was a positive dog, but it had been recently imported from another area. So we consider rabies part of our core vaccine. It's actually, in Ontario anyways, you legally have to have a rabies vaccine if your horse is going to be interacting with the public. So that's school horses, horses that go to fairs, horses in petting zoos, anything like that. And then we just highly recommend it. Even if your horse doesn't get a lot of turnout or even any turnout, rabies can really make wildlife act abnormally. And so it's not that crazy to think that they might wander into the barn and bite an unsuspecting horse on the nose. So that's rabies is really important. It's also worth noting that you wouldn't always recognize a bite from wildlife if you see it. You know, your horse might come in with a tiny little cut on its pastern and you never stop to think maybe that was a fox out in the field. So vaccinating against rabies is really, really important. So we have tetanus, we have rabies, and then we have our mosquito-borne diseases. So the mosquito-borne diseases that we see in Ontario are eastern equine encephalitis. Western equine encephalitis is lumped in with that, and then our West Nile virus. And all horses, no matter where they are, are exposed to mosquitoes. You don't have to travel. The mosquitoes come to you. So all of those uh, diseases are considered core for us as well. So that's our, that's our list of our core vaccines that all horses should be vaccinated against every year. So I guess the one thing that we keep in consideration is that, uh, and I'll sort of segue to you on this, Claudia, is that, you know, we like to split them up for the timing because we have the mosquito-borne disease. So there's no sense vaccinating in December for mosquito-borne disease. We at McKee Panel, we like to split up our vaccines and not give them all at once. So Claudia, can you discuss the I'll say the pros and cons of splitting up vaccines versus the multi-dose vaccines that are very popular. Talking about the multi-dose vaccines in a practical way, it makes sense for certain people if they don't have access to veterinarians in remote areas and they still want to protect their horses and also for, I guess, the practical reasons of money, right? Uh, as compared to paying recurrent call fees for splitting up vaccines. So that would be a pro, uh, vaccinating against multiple uh, diseases at once. Uh, however, there's also cons about that. And uh, the ones that come to my mind would be, first of all, the amount of immunogenicity, so the capacity of the immune system to react against each of the antigens or the stimuli that you are putting in that vaccine is going to be less as compared when you are giving what we call a monovalent vaccine. So that means a single one antigen, a single one like vaccinating against a single disease versus several diseases is more efficient and the immune system boosters in a bigger amounts, let's say, like those memory cells uh, booster in a bigger amount than as compared to giving multiple antigens in one vaccine. So that would be the main con also, I guess another kind of uh, doing uh, multiple vaccines would be that some horses 
And if you think about that, like some of us have the COVID vaccine, right? And there was just a single antigen that we were put the first time that we were exposed to that. And some of us felt really bad after the vaccine. So you can imagine horses, whether they have been previously vaccinated or not, uh, if you are putting, let's say, three to five or six antigens in the same vaccine, like all, all sorts of different stuff, Westnav virus, equine and Western encephalitis, tetanus, and whatever, you name it, like as many antigens as you can in a single vaccine, their reaction uh, will probably be a strong, a stronger reaction for that horse. And they may feel bad. Some of them, we've seen that they colic and they they become extremely lethargic for a couple of days, maybe three. That would be a con. Uh, that would be another call fee for a vet to come and assess a colic, trying to lower down a fever, trying to help this animal. Some of them would actually have colitis with it. That would be a big con of uh, of vaccinating a horse with a multi-vaccine. That's a really good overview. I think I also want to just make sure we mentioned that uh, all of the vaccine manufacturers, whether you're vaccinating with our practice or any other practice wherever, that's not important, is most of the manufacturers do have some kind of, let's say, quote-unquote insurance protection. So if there is a really acute reaction to a vaccine, most of the manufacturers, not all of them, will cover to a, a certain dollar amount any treatments. And I want to sort of make sure that we, that's so, so rare. I just want to make sure people are not thinking like, well, I don't want to vaccinate my horse because there, something's going to happen. I, I think as Marissa was talking about with rabies and tetanus and the, the mosquitoes that come to them, like these are pretty devastating diseases when they happen. So it's a little ounce of prevention is really doing a lot. Marissa, maybe you can uh, discuss some of the other vaccines that we will encounter or we will recommend depending on the circumstances in Ontario. I'll jump to that. I just want to add to what Claudia said. If you go back to thinking of it like an army, the two points that we made when we talk about multivalent vaccines versus monovalent vaccines is that either you're showing too many mugshots at once and they can't possibly memorize them all, or too many mugshots at once essentially sends the horse's immune system into just a frenzy and they're reacting way too much and more than they should. So that's, I think, an easy way to break it down. And when you look at kind of the struggle with having the monovalent versus multivalent vaccines. So yeah, the other vaccines that we talk about, and there's, there's a big list and it's very dependent on where you are and what you're doing with your horse and what you want to protect against. So what most people are very familiar with would be the respiratory diseases that we want to vaccinate against. So um, Dr. Cruz already mentioned equine influenza. That's usually lumped together with equine herpes virus, also known as rhinopneumonitis. So those are your transmitted horse-to-horse causes fever, snotty nose, and potentially other disease signs. But those are the ones that are, like I said, transmitted horse-to-horse. We see that more in big boarding facilities with horses coming and going, big show facilities. So also kind of lumping into the respiratory diseases that we can vaccinate against would be strangles. No one really likes the S word. No one wants to think about it. And we can maybe get a little bit more into the strangles vaccine itself. But strangles is another one that is a horse-to-horse transmission respiratory pathogen that can be vaccinated against. And then there's kind of our other risk-based vaccines that are things like our Potomac horse fever, our botulism. I think those are our big ones, right? Yeah, but the botulism, is there a recommendation if horses are being fed on silage 
or any kind of fermented grass that they should be on or should have a botulism vaccine? Absolutely, 100%. So if they are getting any fermented, either haylage or silage, they should be getting a botulism vaccine. Yeah, and I just bring that up because I know with the price of hay, some people will look at that as an option, and it's a very good option, but that risk of botulism is increased with the haylage or silage. Claudia, I, I'm asking a question because I know we have to ask this, and that people are probably listening to this and go, you know, I bring my dog to the vet and we do rabies every three years and other vaccines every three years. Why do horses need to be vaccinated every year when other species are less frequent? It has an immunity of 12 to 14 months. That's what the products claim. All of them are kill products. So that's what we need to do. Regardless of that, I mean, horses, if you think about that, we put them on pastures and if they go to trails and stuff, uh, they are exposed to what Dr. Marky said, not just other, let's say, rabbit mammals, but they are also exposed to bats and stuff like that, which obviously are mammals as well. But it's very infrequent that those would be exposed to those things because they are usually in houses, right? But horses can be exposed, depending on their geographical location, to fruit bats, to insect bats, raccoons, skunks, whatever, coyotes, anything like that. So you can't really feed a horse in the house to protect them at all times. And manufacturers recommend 12 to 14 months to booster that vaccine. I have to add something about the, I guess, the risk-based vaccines. Uh, talking about Potomac horse fever in certain areas of Canada, I think it's important as well. Because I saw it quite a bit in Alberta. And talking about the rabies vaccine uh, along with the Potomac horse fever, that would be another example on why monovalent vaccine is recommended in these cases. First of all, the Potomac horse fever vaccine is not the most protective vaccine to begin with. It protects about 70 to at the most 80%, which is not great for a vaccine because it's created from one of the six strains that have been recognized. And now there is another neurichetia identified two years ago in wealth. So that doesn't even, the vaccine doesn't even protect against this one that causes clinical disease. Now, if you add this Potomac horse fever vaccine with the rabies vaccine, then you run the risk that their efficacy might even be lower than what you would want. So something to think about, for sure. You're recommending giving those separately to maximize their effectiveness. Yes, definitely. And I think to your point about the difference between vaccinating our dogs or cats every three years and horses, is any horse person will know that horses are reactive creatures. So when we you know, when we try and boost the immune power of a vaccine, you're also boosting that immune response. And, and like we were talking about earlier, some of our horses can't handle that and they feel colicky or they show other signs. And so if you're trying to boost that immune response, you're getting those increased side effects. And I just don't think any manufacturer has found a happy medium or a safe way to increase the length of time that the rabies immunity lasts and also have the vaccine itself be safe. So the one-year vaccine is really the safest, most protective option. Yeah. I did not know that. That is interesting. And that makes sense because when you think about how sensitive some horses are to vaccines, like, yeah, to give them enough dose to last three years, I can just imagine some of them would just be like, nope, I'm a chestnut. We don't do that. <laughs> I'm just going to lie down and get really sick now. Exactly. And that's a lot more serious when your horse decides to be sick for a few days than your dog because... We all know that if they stop eating and drinking, things get a lot more complicated a lot more quickly. 
Yeah. You know, with COVID, we had some efficacy rates that were really, really high. I think with animals, we're always trying to be as high as possible. And while we don't have many that are efficacious as the, some of the COVID vaccines that we had, I guess a little or even 70% is way better than less than that or 30%. So everything we do, it's always that risk balance. That's why I guess we recommend the core vaccines and then the other ones is depending on your area and if you need it what the horses are doing. I know we talk with people, if you have a retired horse that's just living at home on the farm and never sees another horse, it's a hard argument to make to give it a flu rhino. But if they're out, they're going on trail rides or going at the horse or what have you, and they're going to be having contact um, or breathing near other horses, then it's maybe something to consider. So I guess, again, uh, regardless of who your veterinarian is, that's the discussion to have with them of what are the risks and What's in the area? Because I know one thing that we didn't talk about is that there is the Ontario Animal Health Network where veterinarians across the province submit just diseases that they're seeing. So, and this is an initiative by OMASRA. So it's really good that we're pretty current on when things are happening in other parts of the province. And we can sort of say, hey, we're in Wellington County, for example. There's a strangles outbreak that we know about. Um, maybe it's a good idea. But if you're in Ottawa, yeah probably not necessary. So last question for both of you. We've talked a lot about the different vaccines, the different diseases that they protect against, yet we've all seen strangles, but I have never seen a rabies or a tetanus. Have either of you? I thankfully have not. I've had some scares, but it's not what it ended up being, thankfully. That's good. And Claudia, you're nodding your head like you've seen these. I have seen both. Rabies in Mexico caused by bats and tetanus quite a bit in Morocco because of uh, no vaccination. So when you compare the pros and cons, there's no con at all. You have to take the advantages of vaccination, which is a reasonably cheap vaccine when you compare it to what it costs to treat a case of tetanus and the chances of survival are very low. Uh, that's why it's going to be always, uh, you know, a core vaccine, tetanus. Yeah. And I know that we've had in the practice, I'm sure other best experience in Ontario, is some botulism secondary to haylage and silage, and that was not fun. Again, just as you were saying with tetanus, the vaccine could have really reduced the chances of that. So, hey, on that really cheery note, just like the vaccines have really protected us, whether it's COVID or influenza or tetanus or what have you, they're super effective on horses. And so, you know, talk to your veterinarian about what's best for your horse, depending on where you live and the age of your horse and what you're doing. And, and uh, the benefit will far outweigh the expense. So thank you both very much. Have fun with all the vaccinations that are going on. It's been a bit intense right now. Well, thanks for having us. And hopefully it gives, gives everyone a little bit of taste of all of the education and research and thought processes that go into our recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. They really do come from somewhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.